0: And so let us hear the word of God. Romans 3, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin, as it is written. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Now, as we begin here today, we constantly hear in our culture about those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous. And if you are on a particular side of something, the opposite, of course, is unrighteous. So we hear regularly how the uh, conservatives, the MAGA group, the Trump supporters, and so forth are unrighteous. They are racist and homophobic and xenophobic and so forth. And yet the other side will say, well, the left, the progressives, the the liberals who hate America and hate the church and Christianity and want to fundamentally transform our culture. They're the unrighteous ones, and we, of course, are righteous. Uh, We could talk about the Israeli and Palestinian conflict. We could talk about um, the uh, um, uh, white versus black scenario or the gender issues or you name it. In every one of these, there is the so-called righteous position and the so-called unrighteous one. But as Paul teaches us here, and as he says, as the Bible teaches us, there is no one who is righteous, no, not one. Now, last time, we, in some ways, learned a new thought here in Paul, as we looked at verse 9. Um On the other hand, he had already spoken of these things. But as we come to verse 9, he words it a bit differently. Paul has proclaimed that Jews and Gentiles all sin. He has said that none of us are perfect, and so all people deserve God's wrath and judgment. And he reiterates that idea in verse 9, but by wording it differently, he gives us a little different perspective on what he has been saying and the extent of our sin. Not only do we fail to meet God's perfect standards and that even our best actions and thoughts and words are filthy rags, he also says we are under sin. In other words, we are slaves under sin's power. And it is true that sin is a weight upon us. The sinful behaviors bind us. We become addicted to them. The consequences of our sin weigh down upon us. But Paul is going even further than that, saying that we are actually slaves to sin as a power. It is our master, and we cannot escape from it. And we also need to include the idea that we enjoy our slavery. In our culture, we frequently hear that all slaves want to be freed. But that isn't true at least not completely, because addicts typically return to their booze and their drugs. The abused tend to return to their abusers. Voters re-elect bad politicians. Criminals that let out of jail many times want to go back because they like it there. Well, in a similar way, we enjoy our bondage to sin. We enjoy sinning. Indulging in sexual and social sins makes us feel good at least in some ways. And of course, we like to be in charge and control God. And so in saying things like he has said here in verse 9, he expands our thought a bit. Well, Paul has now taken 53 verses to explain how wretched we are and how God is just to judge us. And as I said a number of weeks ago, this is longer than several books in the scriptures. Well, Paul now brings his teaching to a conclusion by using what is called a chain citation. He is citing various Old Testament passages and linking them together like a chain. Others have called it pearl stringing. And so you take these valuable jewels, jewels, these pearls, and you string them together like a necklace or something like that. And so rabbis did this, priests, religious leaders in Paul's day, and he's doing similarly. Uh, I have done this, and for example, the funeral sermon that I uh, will bring, Um, I focus on several emotions that we face when a loved one dies, but then I conclude by reading 20 or more passages that reinforce the things that I have said, talking about sin and death and the gospel. I did it here in Romans. Um, In chapter 2, verse 6 in particular, remember the quotation here from Psalm 62, God will render to each one according to his deeds. And then I probably read 15 other passages that say the same thing. It is a chain citation idea. And so Paul is doing that here in verses 10 through 18. Now, people count up the different passages a bit differently Uh, Some will say there are seven passages that he references. Some will say more or less. Um, But the point is, it's not just Paul that has such a pessimistic view of us. All the scripture does. We must understand that. All scripture is teaching that we are rotten sinners and have no hope in ourselves. So, let's begin this citation chain here by looking at verse 10, and the very first thing he says is, as it is written. Now, this is a common statement he used it in chapter 1, verse 17. We see it elsewhere, of course. Um, but let me develop this just a little bit and go down this path slightly here today. <clears throat> Notice that God's word was written. Words were used, verbs and nouns and phrases and paragraphs. God has preserved these words and the ideas they communicate for future generations, for Paul, for us, and for many others. Now, God used oral tradition, yes, but that's not what he preserved for us. God certainly uses stories here, but these now are stories with words. He doesn't have a movie for us or pictures or whatever. He has words. This is very important. We must be able to read words and interpret them. Now, you may remember uh, at our Reformation celebration, I talked a little bit about illiteracy rates in America, and it is now on average over 20% of America that cannot read and write. It's about 70 million people. And of the ones who can, over half of them cannot read above a fifth grade level. The problem is God gave us words and it's written above a fifth grade level. And so the implication here for us is that we must be able to read and to write and to interpret. And not be content with a third grade level of reading or even a sixth grade level of reading, but to continue to grow in our abilities to interpret because ultimately we must know what God has told us. And so notice it's this um, very obvious implication. As I've said also at other times, surely we must be able to do this in our own language. But ultimately, it is best if we know the Greek and the Hebrew, the language that God has given to us. Now, this does not mean we ought to be scholars or pastors, but all of us should have a workable use of the languages that God has given to us. Just like not everybody has to be like Dale or Susan and be able to teach math, but we all need math if you want to bake a cake or balance your checkbook or something to that effect. And so, notice, God gave us words. Let's understand them. So, let me now transition here now to look at the broad section here, verses 10 to 18. And in verses 10 to 12, notice that Paul is giving us a summary of his thought. No one is righteous. But then in verses 13 to 14, he focuses on the things that we say, And in verses 15 to 17, he focuses on the things that we do. And then in verse 18, he emphasizes what we look at or fail to look at. So Paul's going to quote here from Psalms 14 and 53, Psalms 5, 140, and 10, Isaiah 59, and Psalm 36. So if you put all those together, that's where you get your seven. Uh, some say because 14 and 53 are the same, they had only a six. Others add other passages that say similar things. Note also this broad view. Paul says there is not five times in these verses. You'll see the end of verse 10, New King James says there is none. Twice in verse 11, the end of verse 12, and then in verse 18. Five times. Add also, no, not one, twice, in verse 10 and in verse 12. And then you have all and full, depending on your translation, how they give those words. And so if we go with seven passages quoted, and now seven times he says no, nice, perfect numbers here for Paul to summarize his argument. All right. Well, now let's zero in on his first quotation, verses 10 to 12. Let me read it again in Paul's uh, wording. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. All right, now let's turn to Psalm 14. Psalm 14. Now as I said a little bit ago when we read through these two Psalms, uh, I said that the differences are very minor, and one of the biggest differences are the names of God. Uh, In Psalm 14, the name Yahweh, or Lord in capital letters, is used four times. The name God, or Elohim, is used three times. So right, there is no God, verse 2, the Lord, Yahweh, looks down, and so forth. But as you may want to keep both sides open here, as it were, like I have here, and you look at both, uh, in Psalm 53, you'll notice the name Yahweh is not used at all. The places where Yahweh is used in Psalm 14 is replaced with Elohim, and so all seven times the name of God that is used in Psalm 53 is Elohim, or God. Now, you may recall when we did our study of the Psalms. Remember, there are the five books in the Psalter and such. And in book one, the name Yahweh is emphasized. Hey, um, you have the name Yahweh used a certain amount of times and about a fifth of that number, we have the name God or Elohim. In book two, it switches around almost exactly. You have the name Elohim that is emphasized and the name Yahweh is used about a fifth of uh, of that number. And uh, it's because in book one, the emphasis is on the sufferings of David and especially how that impacts God's people. In book two, we see David being established as king, but the message now is more so for the nations around Israel, not so much for Israel. So the name change makes sense. He used Israel's covenant Lord's name in book one. He used the more generic name, if you will, in book two, because you're speaking to the nations. And so David here in book one is saying, believers need to understand the way of the fool. In Psalm 53, now David is saying here that everyone even the Gentiles, the nations, must understand the way of the fool. It is no accident that Paul picks a psalm that has the same message to both groups of people. He is speaking to Jews and Gentiles. He could have easily picked some other passages here, but he picked the one that is virtually identical with a message to the people of God and a message to the nations. And he says, all of us must recognize that no one is righteous. All of us are fools. And so notice this initial point. So let's use Psalm 14 as our our pattern here. Again, just some minor differences, especially here in verses 1 to 3 with Psalm 53. And so notice verse 1 then, Psalm 14, David says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. All right, now, Paul does not give us all of that, obviously. And notice he changes the word good to righteous, right? There is none righteous, he says. So you might say he's paraphrasing this verse. But you also can say he's already talked about us being fools, hasn't he? In chapter 1 in particular, he has said... Since we all suppress the truth about God and turn to idols, we're all a bunch of fools. Because we're all, in essence, saying there is no God. All of us are at least practical atheists. It's not just the atheists that are the fool. It's not just the atheist who openly says there is no God. It's not just that group of people who are corrupt and do abominable works. It's not just those people who do no good. It is true for us all. And that's what he has told us in Romans chapter 1. The emphasis may be on the Gentiles, but we cannot exclude ourselves. All of us have done foolishly. All of us have lived as if God is not there. How many decisions do you make on a weekly basis and you don't pray about it? We've all been there, right? How many days have you gone through and you lay your head down on your pillow and you're like, oh, I didn't think about God today. Hey, we all have played the fool. We all have established idols in our hearts and in our lives. We all are fools. There is none righteous, whether Jew or Gentile. And so Paul is summarizing this point. Not one person is righteous. No Gentile, no Jew, no moral person, no Christian, no one. And so, as he said, then you recall in chapter 2 of Romans and in verse 7, he said, There is eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. And then in verse 10, But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's our principle. Right, That is what would happen if anybody did it, but nobody has. There is none righteous, not one. Now, of course, Jesus is the exception, but no one else. And so we are all fools. It's not just the left. It's not just the right. It's not just the MAGA people or black people or white people or whatever, right? No one is righteous. So don't buy into this this binary setup that our culture wants to give us. We are all unrighteous. So, verse 2 then here in the psalm. Psalm 14, verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. Now notice how it's presenting it almost like a question. It's not a question, but you get the idea. God's going to go down to earth and see if there's anybody righteous. Is he going to find any? Well, verse three says, they have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one, not just the one who outwardly says there is no God. God cannot find anyone who has not turned aside to idols. God cannot find anyone who has not been corrupted with the falseness of idolatry. God cannot find anyone who does good, worthy of his praise. God cannot find even one. Now again, Psalm 53 says virtually the same, just a few minor differences here. It does not change the meaning. So let's come back then to Romans and chapter 3. And now notice how Paul handles this. I've already mentioned about verse 10, that he more or less is paraphrasing that verse and including the ideas in chapter one. Now here in verse 11, notice how he also rewords Psalm 14, verse two. He says, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God, right? The Psalm gives it almost as a question. God's gonna go, look, is he gonna find anyone? Well, Paul's already giving us the answer here. And verse 11, by saying, he didn't find any. There are none. So, two thoughts here then. First of all, there is no one who understands. Let's go back to Romans 1. He already told us this, right? Romans 1, verse 21. Although they knew God, right, from what God has made, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts And their foolish hearts were darkened. (coughs) Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Now, as we talked about in Romans 1, that's all of us. We all have idols. There are no exceptions to that. We all do not understand. We all have become fools. But as I also said, as we went through this and into chapter two, it's not that we have no understanding. Again, all we have to do is look outside and we have understanding. We understand the truth that God exists and many things about him. We all know that we are sinners and God is, is displeased with us. We also have the law of God written on our hearts. We have understanding, but not the ultimate understanding of truth. Because the understanding we have, we suppress, and we exchange with what is false. And so Paul can rightly say to the person that has all kinds of letters before or after their name, you don't understand anything. He can come here and stand in front of us and and tell us, you don't understand either, apart from Jesus Christ. We have no understanding in this ultimate sense. Now, the second thing, of course, he says here is that there are none who seeks after God. Again, notice Paul is basically giving the conclusion of the psalm. Everyone, to say it a little differently here, everyone seeks after what is false. We all seek, but we just don't seek after God. We seek after other things. We seek for religious activities to earn our way to heaven we seek after the gods of our own making but we are not seeking after true religion or the true and living god and so ultimately there is no such thing as a seeker service no one seeks the truth what we seek after is a mixture of truth and error because we really don't want the truth. We're suppressing that. And so uh, we don't want to run to total non-truth. And so we mix truth with something else because we know that's at least closer to the truth and makes us feel a little better. No one seeks true religious activity. Like Adam, we hide And so work salvation becomes our zeal in order to avoid true and total commitment to God. This is what describes all of us. There are no exceptions. Now I will say this, if someone is truly seeking after God, it's only because God is seeking them first and has worked in their heart to change them and bring them to himself. But on our own, none of us do. We may think we do. We may go to church. I'm seeking God. Oh, look at that person. They're so religious. They love God. All these things they do. But no, actually, they're seeking after something else apart from the work of the Spirit in the heart. And so we are dead. We are blind. We are foolish. We are ignorant. We seek after anything and everything other than what is true and right in God himself. And so as Paul said last time, right, we're in bondage. There is no such thing as a free will. Our will is totally bent on going the wrong direction. All right, now verse 12. They have all turned aside, they have together become unprofitable, there is none who does good, no, not one. Here Paul is uh, virtually verbatim to what the psalm is saying. Everyone has turned from the true God, and so we are therefore useless, corrupt, unprofitable. Only the godly are useful, and none of us are godly, Not one person has done anything worthy of God's praise. Or to say it literally, not as many as one. So you remember the scale I've talked about from zero to 100, and then we can't even rate above a zero? That's what Paul is saying here. Not as many as one person has done what God has required. Again, other than Jesus. And so everyone in the whole world has rejected the true God, even though we know him by what he has made, even though we know his law because he put it on our hearts. But we must add another idea here. And Paul's going to say it in verse 18. But the idea here is we do not seek God. We do not seek truth because we hate it. We hate God. It's not that we're indifferent It's not that we're confused. It's not that we're blind only. But we hate God. And we hate anything and everything about him. Even now, as regenerate Christians, there's a part of us that hates the fact that I have to bow the knee to God. God, why why did you do this in my life? We've all said that, right? Paul's going to say in chapter five, verse eight, that we are enemies of God. Now, few will openly say this; few will openly say they're atheists or satanists. <clears throat> but all of us, in our bondage, enjoy our sin and hate God Himself. All of us exchange the truth for a mixture of truth and lies. We exchange godly behavior for works salvation. Some go to church and do it, some don't. Some are secular, some claim some other religion. But everyone, you, me, there is no exception. Whether you're part of the MAGA train or part of the globalists, it doesn't matter. Non-Christians admit they reject the God of the Bible, but because Paul here is quoting the Bible... All of us need to admit it to. So let me add to the pearl stringing here a little bit. Hey, if you want to follow along, that's fine. First Kings chapter 8. <clears throat> these are the words of Solomon when he dedicated the temple and he was praying to God. And he says in verse 46, When they sin against you, <clears throat> for there is no one who does not sin. And then he continues. In Psalm 143, we have this psalm that says, if I get there, verse 2, Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight, speaking of God, no one living is righteous. In Proverbs 20 and uh, verse 9, who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from my sin? Or even closer then, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20. For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. And one more here in this necklace, as it were. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So we have seen Paul tell us that we are all imperfect, sinners who miss God's standard of perfection. We are unable not to sin. He has told us that all of us are bound to, As slaves to sin as a power, we cannot not sin. All of us enjoy seeking for partial truth, for false gods of our making, rather than the truth and the true and living God. All of us oppose God and his truth. We are enemies, we are rebellious, we are ignorant, blind, corrupt, useless, Like bad fruit that is mushy and filled with rotten flies and bad odor. Have you accepted this truth yet? Or are you still fighting against it and say, I'm not that bad. That's what I used to be like. Do you still see your rottenness even now as a child of God? Let me read here, first of all, from John Stott, who, first of all, says it this way. Paul's repetition hammers home the point. Twice we are told that all have gone their own way, four times that no one is righteous, and twice that not even one is an exception, and that's just verses 10 to 12. For to be righteous is to live in conformity to God's law And the best man, the noblest, the most learned, the most philanthropic, the greatest idealist, the greatest thinker, say what you like. There has never been a man who can stand up to the test of the law. Drop your plumb line, and he is not true to it. He also says this, God's complaint here is that we do not really seek him at all, making his glory our supreme concern that we have not set him before us, that there is no room for him in our thoughts, and that we do not love him with all our powers. Sin is the revolt of the self against God, the dethronement of God with a view to the enthronement of oneself. Ultimately, sin is self-deification, the reckless determination to occupy the throne which belongs to God alone. And again, I would say, that desire does not go away once our heart has been regenerated. Those remnants are still there until we are glorified. Let me also then read a bit here from James Montgomery Boyce. This one's a little bit longer, but let me set it up like this. The first thought for us is simply, have you accepted this truth about yourself? But one of the implications of this, Paul will develop in verses 21 to 26. You've got to understand this before you can understand the gospel. But Boyce takes us another step and he says, okay, but what do we do when we're talking to somebody else? when we're witnessing, when we're defending the faith? Should we say what Paul says here? What does the free offer of the gospel really mean? So with that in mind, this is, here are some things that he says. And he first says this, quoting the larger catechism, question 25. The sinfulness of that State whereinto man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of that righteousness wherein he was created, and the corruption of his nature, whereby he is utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all that is spiritually good, and wholly inclined to all evil and that continually. All right, then he says this. I suppose that at this point there are people who are willing to agree somewhat reluctantly that the inability of the will to choose God or believe on Christ is the prevailing doctrine of the church and perhaps even the teaching of the Bible. But they are still not certain of this teaching's value and may even consider it harmful. And so they ask, if we teach that men and women cannot choose God, don't we destroy the main impetus to evangelism? and undercut the missionary enterprise? Does this destroy our ability to defend the faith? Isn't it better just to keep quiet about it? And then Boyce says this, it should be sufficient to answer this worry and say that the very person who gave us the great commission said, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. That's Matthew 11 and John 6 and other passages. But let me answer instead by saying that contrary to this doctrine being a hindrance to evangelism, it is actually the greatest possible motivation for spreading the gospel. If it is true that the sinner left alone never naturally seeks out God, how is that individual ever going to find God unless other people sent by God carry the gospel to him or her? Right? It's not going to happen on its own. We got to go, right? And then the objector says this, but okay, but even then the person cannot respond. True enough, not by himself, but it is through the preaching and teaching of the gospel that God ge- that, excuse me, God chooses to call people to faith, and anyone who obeys God and takes the gospel to the lost can be encouraged to know that God will work through this means. Moreover, the evangelists and apologists will pray for the sinner since nothing but the work of God, certainly not the eloquence or charm of man and his reasoning and evidence can save him. Now Paul's going to elaborate on this point in Romans 10. I've talked about it off and on here in chapters 1 to 3. We cannot start at first base in our conversations with other people. We have to start at home plate, which is, We're dead in our sins. You hate God. And no reason, no evidence is ever going to convince you of anything that is true. You have to recognize that you're utterly hopeless. That's starting at home plate. And there is no pinch hitter that is going to help other than the Spirit. Now he continues. Quoting again the skeptic. Surely you must not tell the sinner that he cannot respond unless God first does a work of regeneration in him, can you? On the contrary, that's exactly what the sinner needs to know. For it is only in such understanding that sinful human beings learn how desperate their situation is and how absolutely essential is God's grace. If we are hanging on to some confidence in our own spiritual ability, our own reason our own abilities to work things out, however small, we will never seriously worry about our condition. There will be no sense of urgency. But if we're truly dead in sin, as Paul says we are, and if that involves our will as well as all other parts of our psychological and spiritual makeup, we will find ourselves in near despair. We will see our state as hopeless apart from the supernatural and totally unmerited workings of the grace of God. And that is what God wants. Let me reword and restate what he is telling us here. These words in Romans 3, and frankly Romans 1 to 3, are not just for the believer to understand. It is this very message that we must take to the unbeliever. We must show them that they have absolutely nothing in themselves that is worthy of any praise before God, and that they have no hope to come to him, that they cannot choose him, that they are slaves, because it is at that point that they will recognize they have nothing, and they might then, by God's grace working in them, they will turn to Christ. If we give them any hope whatsoever, then we're actually undermining the very thing we are trying to accomplish. And so Boyce then says this as well. Our only proper role is humbly to acknowledge our sin, confess our blindness, and admit that we can no more choose God by our enslaved wills than we can please him by our sullied moral acts. All we can do is call on God for mercy, Knowing that we cannot do that ourselves. Knowing, even as we seek to do so, that only God can first be active to convict us of sin and lead us to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. The implications of Paul's words here are, are rather far reaching. And he will give us some of those implications as we turn to what some call the greatest paragraph ever written. But here is also another aspect for us. As we are witnessing to those around us, let's not leave Paul's teaching in the church. Let's bring it to the people. Show them they are hopeless. Because then, that is when God can work in them to bring them... to himself. So a few thoughts here in this way. We'll continue this chain, Lord willing, next time. Let's pray together. Our Father in God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, this teaching, because certainly we would not ever think this way about ourselves if it weren't for your word. Lord, we pray first of all, and that you would help us to accept this truth about ourselves. That we would not say, well, that's true of somebody else. That we would not even say, well, that was true before we were converted, which is partially the case. But help us, Lord, to see how even now we are not righteous and do not seek after you and do not seek your truth. And so, Lord, we pray that you certainly would work in all of us here by your spirit to help us to see our hopelessness, our helplessness, that we might turn to you in faith, maybe for some for the first time, but even for all of us, that we would continue to turn to you in faith and repentance because we all fall short and there is no difference. Lord, we pray for your mercies here in this way. And that you would enable us then, uh, not only for our own sake to know these truths, but then to proclaim it to others. And that you would use us in this message to expand your kingdom. And so, Lord, again, we thank you for your word that you have written and preserved. And uh, we pray then that you would um, accomplish your good pleasure through it here today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.